Dotnet Rocks episode 611 with guests John Skeet and Bill Wagner. Recorded live Tuesday, September 21st, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. And uh, we're talking today with Bill Wagner and John Skeet. Bill Wagner co-founder of SRT Solutions, has developed commercial software for the past 20 or so years, leading the design on many successful engineering and enterprise Microsoft Windows products. He now spends his time facilitating .NET adoption in clients' product and enterprise development. Bill's principal strengths include the C-sharp language, the core framework, smart clients, and service-oriented architecture and design. Good morning, Carl. How are you doing? Hey, Bill. John Skeet is a C-sharp and Java developer currently working at Google in the UK. For many years, he's been a frequent poster in technical news groups and has been awarded the C-sharp MVP by Microsoft since uh, 2003. His C-sharp website contains some of the most frequently referenced articles on topics such as singleton implementations and parameter passing. He was a member of the writing team for Groovy in Action in 2007, and his first solo book, C-Sharp In-Depth, came out in May 2008. John is interested in tracking how languages and platforms are evolving to blend imperative and functional styles of programming, as well as providing more support for parallelism. Welcome, John. Hey, nice to be here. Well, you've both been on the show before. Of course, Bill, you've done several DNR TVs and been on a couple of times. Uh, The last one was uh, 391 in uh, uh, October 2008. John, you were on show 383 in October 2008. Welcome back. Nice to be here. It's nice to be here. Thanks a lot uh, for having us. And both C-sharp guys, I was surprised when I looked at the numbers and went, wow, we did in-depth C-sharp shows a month apart in 2008. Yeah. Well, it was a big time for C-sharp. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, honestly, I don't think we've really done a real heavyweight C-Sharp 4.0 show, although we recently had Anders Halsberg on, and he certainly had some opinions on what's going on with C-Sharp. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was interesting to hear the the direction they really want to take it in. Um, Link was the big story, you know, back then. And every time I use it, I'm just amazed at how easy it is. And the things that go along with Link, I think, make a big difference. So I still haven't seen any XML APIs nearly as nice as Link to XML. It's just beautiful. It is beautiful. And it shouldn't be. It's got all these kind of string conversions and um, abusing implicit conversions all over the place, and it just works. Yeah. It's a true work of mad genius, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you really have to suspend your, uh, your, your, your taste for mixing, uh, you know, to, to, to breaking the rules in, in, in the editor and the way you think of things. Like if it weren't for co- slight coloration, you wouldn't be able to figure out what was going on if you just looked at it. And things like uh, the, the constructors for X element, you, you look at it and say, well, it's taking object or an array of objects. Hey, where's my strong typing? Oh, but it's going to do all these different things and depending on exactly what you've got. So it all sort of makes sense. And then you try to use it and it's just beautiful. It just works. It's lovely. 
yeah, that's actually one of the things I really like there is it's it's really nice to be able to make small snippets of XML that get used in a lot of different kinds of documents. Right. And just how, how easy it is to write an XML document or to parse an XML document. Right. I recently I recently used them working on this little you know, I have these little hobby programs that I start for one reason or another just because I like to keep my teeth sharp. And um I wrote a crossword puzzle in Silverlight. And it's all starts with an XML file. I'm I downloaded and well I downloaded and then I bought this uh I downloaded the trial and bought this program that's a crossword puzzle compiler. You basically give it the grid layout and then you say, okay, fill it with words and it goes to town and just creates this puzzle. And then you uh, export it and it exports all the words and where they are across, down, and all the clues for the words into an XML file. Very simple XML file. And it literally took me 10 minutes to, to parse it and to figure out how to get all that data in. Just by looking at the you know looking at the schema and figuring it out in linked yeah. XML. Oh yeah. And the querying side, I mean, it always feels a little bit of a con calling it linked to XML as if it's an XML, a link provider like linked SQL or Entity Framework. Um, it's really just a nice XML API that works very very well with link. Yeah. Um, but the querying methods on there just make it so nice and easy to sort of separate the okay, now I want to find some elements and I want to express that bit in code from, well, here's the element name and that's a bit of data. Um, obviously, an XPath query can often be a lot more compact than that. But I certainly find that the, the fact that everything in the X, XPath query is just in one string yeah. makes it a lot harder to debug things and work out where bits are wrong. Whereas if you've got explicit calls to elements, attribute, etc you can tell which bits are sort of navigation and which bits are right now I'm trying to find an element. Yeah, XPath seems, it's almost right only. Once you get it working right, you're afraid to ever touch it again. Well, I find that, but that's probably because I'm not very good at it. I suspect a lot of things are right only until you know what you're doing. Um, I'm sure that an XPath expert could look at some link and say, oh, that's horrible. Mm. You know, okay, maybe I could write it once, but then I'd never want to touch it again. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are plenty of experts who can read XPath. I'm just not one of them myself, and you know, maybe you guys aren't either. But I think you bring up the real distinction, which is link, Link's readability and functionality serves us well because we don't write at work with XML every day. So where XPath is something, if you don't do it every day, it won't stay in your head. Right, and, yeah. this, and this, I think, is one of the big things with Link and with some of the areas where C-sharp is going is, you know, it's, it's definitely a useful skill to be able to express your ideas in multiple languages and multiple kinds of languages, but it's also quite a drag to sit there and have to go, well, now I'm looking at a database, I have to learn SQL, I'm looking at XML, I have to learn XPath, I'm looking at objects, I can pick, you know, C-sharp or VB or whatever, and, you know... The analogy that I've used a few times trying to explain this to um, non-developers is, you know, imagine if in your corporation you went to engineering and spoke English, and you went to accounting and you had to speak in German, and you went to HR and you had to speak French. It, it's just a mismatch that makes it a lot more work, and, and having a good API in whatever language you want to use makes that so much easier to just not have to become an expert in mul in so many different ways of expressing ideas. 
Now, both you guys write C-sharp books, uh, although they're, I think they're quite different books, too. But uh, They're sort of different. I think there are similarities in that both are really aimed at people who already know the basics of C-sharp and just want to get a lot better at it. And have you read each other's books? I've nearly finished. I'm, on the, uh, I'm on, currently on item 48 of the second edition of the first Effective C-sharp. I haven't read more Effective C-sharp yet. Okay, and I went through uh, the earlier edition of C-sharp in-depth, and I've looked at some of the new chapters in uh, the second edition that John's working on right now. So reasonably familiar, but uh, neither one of us edited those. And and do you guys disagree with each other much? Is there much interpretation of how to use C-sharp that you, that you can come out in different positions on this? I think there's definitely a lot of different, a lot of room for interpretation in in how you use a language like C sharp because it's very general purpose. Uh, John actually sort of started this with uh, his recent blog post talking about some of the guidance I give in Effective C sharp and one of Joe Duffy's blog posts about optimizing programs for parallel algorithms. Um, and it definitely depends on what kind of things you're building. What was the gist of that? There's a lot of different opinions out there. Well, I'm just trying to grab onto was it so there was a particular coding technique that Joe Duffy was advocating that supports parallel development more. It wasn't so much um, particularly parallel development, so much as he was um, banging on the premature optimization is to be avoided um, as a real myth. And as someone who keeps coming up with on Stack Overflow, hey, forget asking whether it's faster to do a for each loop or to call list dot for each you know it's not going to matter um so i'm i'm someone who frequently posts the premature optimization avoid it like crazy um and joe was going to town against that position saying yeah actually it does matter and if you can get you know, very very small optimizations throughout your code base then your whole app may be a bit faster and my position is for many cases, that's absolutely true, but it will take you a fair amount of time to get there. And if you're doing, I think the example I gave was, if you're doing an internal um, business HR application and it takes you know, 60 milliseconds instead of 50 milliseconds to get a reply, no one's going to care. Nobody you know, cares. And, and I mean, I do so much work in sort of performance tuning. The last button. thing I look at is that kind of code optimization. Data access and network calls. There's so many things that take so much more time compared to hammering through a small chunk of code. Hmm. Well, you know, there might be some listeners who aren't familiar with that term, premature optimization. Just get, give okay, us a so little refresher course. What I was basically talking about was worrying about where the performance is going to go for every line of code you write. Now, I do believe that it's important to get the overall architecture and design right. Um, one of Bill's items talks about making network conversations sort of chunky, so design how much you want to convey in one particular message so that it's neither too chatty nor wasting bandwidth, and that kind of thing, absolutely. But on the level of sort of, oh, should I hoist this variable outside the loop or should I declare it inside the loop? Well, you could measure it and try to find out whether there's a difference. A lot of the time you'll end up with duff measurements anyway because microbenchmarks are ridiculously easy to get wrong and it's not going to matter. Yeah, I think that's Richard's Richard's point is that the you know, these these optimizations just 
aren't where the real bottleneck is in an application. Not usually. Now, there's a certain class of development where it absolutely matters. And Joe Duffy is sitting right in the middle there. So he's developing parallel extensions or was developing parallel extensions. And if you're writing a system class, you really, really need to know where the performance is going. Yes. So I have a project that um, is sort of stop, start, stop, start called Node Time, which is meant to be a replacement date and time library for .NET based on the Java Joda Time library. And there, I'm absolutely focused. We will not be your performance bottleneck. And there are various bits of definite micro-optimization which I've proved make a significant difference. And they're the kind of thing you wouldn't normally want, but effectively, it's a system library, and system libraries need to get out of your way. Yeah, yes. If I were writing the same code at an application level, I wouldn't write half of those optimizations. Right, and I think one of the other things that happens a lot is we'll get very fuzzy performance requirements. You know, someone will say, oh, it's got to be fast, right? And, <laughs> well, what does that mean? Um, you know, one of the ones that, that we talk about, we do some work occasionally with um, automotive companies, and it's computer software that decides when your transmission should shift, okay? And fast for them is like a quarter of a second or so, right? That's right. the time they need to perform a shift. Other software runs anti-lock brakes. They have to make those uh, corrections in, I want to say, something like 50 milliseconds is, is their benchmark. Another piece of software decides to deploy the airbag. You know, that's got to be incredibly fast comparatively, right? Because you have the mechanical linkage and everything else that has to um, happen with, you know, in milliseconds. So they all say fast, but they mean very different things. And when you're writing an application, you have to take that kind of situation into account so that you're writing for the performance metrics you have. And as John says, when you're writing system libraries that are going to get used in all those applications, the answer usually comes down to, as Joe points out in a lot of his work, as fast as you can absolutely possibly make it. Yeah. So what, some of the, the things that you write about in your book, um, John, VAR, when to use VAR, when not to use VAR. Mm-hmm. Is there a situation where, on performance aside, it uh, it helps you um, just change what your code does? So, ideally, it shouldn't change what your code does. Um, if using VAR rather than an explicit type changes what your code does, that means that the explicit type that you'd write is not the one that the compiler would choose. And if that's the behavior you want, then it's much better to be explicit about it, partly because then you'll get the results you want, and then you'll be expressing the exact explicit type that you want. And to be honest, if it weren't obvious that that's the case, if you've got some maintenance programmer or whatever who might think, which could be you later on, who might think, hey, this is ugly, let's just stick a var in, it'll make no difference. Um, If you're in the situation where there's that kind of risk, you should either refactor the code so that that risk goes away, or you should be writing a comment saying, yeah, you need to do this very deliberately for this subtle reason. I'm not a big fan of comments in code, but if there's something subtle going on, which is a sort of here be dragons, or I'm doing something unusual, and this is why, then comments are great. Um, But other than that, I use var when it makes things readable. I'm not as consistent as I might be. Um, There's no hard and fast rules for me, uh, for link queries, I tend to. For 
constructor calls, that's fine, although I don't necessarily always do it. Um, for anything where it's not pretty obvious what the type is going to be, I tend to write the explicit type. But Eric Lippert has a, a wonderful way of describing um, when it might make sense to use var and when it might make sense to use an explicit type of variable, which is whether you're trying to emphasize what the code is going to do or how it's going to do it. So if you're thinking at the level of, I just want to read this code as easily as possible and get the gist of the overall aim, then var is great. It gets stuff out of your way. You don't need to know the exact type. You're going to see what's happening to that variable. The compiler's making sure it's all still type safe. Great. If you're trying to say, okay, how exactly is this code working? Right, it's got this particular interface or it's got this concrete class. At that point, an explicit, an explicitly typed variable makes a lot of sense. So it really is um, about readability. It's about being able to just look at the code and see and, and get a sense of, of what it does. Absolutely. Given that the compiled code is going to be the same either way, in most cases, you, know, you would specify an explicitly typed variable, which is going to be the same as the type that's inferred by the compiler. All that goes away at compile time. It's exactly the same code. What else, what difference could there be apart from readability, to be honest? It's certainly not about typing speed, because that's the most pointless yeah, reason pointless. to change your source code style. It's all about how easily can I read that. And that can be as simple as, can I get the entire statement on one line easily without having a really, really long line? Which if you've got, say, a dictionary from int to list of string, well, by the time you've got that twice on one line, it's really messy. So that's one situation where I'd use var. You know, var age to name map equals new dictionary int list string. Right. So this is where I'm... Uh where John and I are pretty close, but probably slightly different in, in our styles. Uh, one is, I I think from his description, I actually would use var more often than John, um, in part because there's a lot of times where the semantic meaning of a variable is more important than its type, um, especially when I'm creating interfaces to do unit testing or things like that, so I'm coding against an interface, and I'm not sure I care whether it's an I employee or an employee, for example. So I'll have var something equals factory dot create new employee. Okay, I know what concept I'm working with. The actual type doesn't really matter. Um, and as John points out, sometimes when it does, var is, is better, or there's a better way to express what type you really want. Um, when you're working with link a lot, you, as John mentioned earlier, there are link providers for entity framework, for link to SQL, um, for Azure table storage. And when you code against those and you use var, you'll end up usually with an iQueryable, which will then take one path in order to execute those queries, to parse them itself and to figure out what kind of call it should be. If you want to force that to a link to objects implementation, you can either explicitly declare the kind of variable you're working with, or you can make an as enumerable call. And that second version is a little bit more clear in the code because you're actually writing some logic that says, I really want to force this to be enumerable and not queryable. You guys were both uh, uh, involved in annotating the the C-sharp 4.0 spec, were you not? Yes, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, what's that process like? I mean, in, 
first of all, were you asked to do this because of your RD or MVP status and and uh, and your and your C sharp uh, uh, you know interest? And what was that process like? I suspect it wasn't so much because of being a C sharp MVP because there are an awful lot of C sharp MVPs. Um, I don't know exactly why it was. I was never told reasoning, but my guess is that, um, say, Mads Torgerson, who's uh, the leading light behind maintaining the C-sharp spec these days, knows that I'm really interested in the spec side of things. So my guess is it was as informal as he said to whoever was organizing the annotations, yeah, I'm sure John would like to do something. And from then on, it was really just a case of adding bits into a Word document. It was as relatively low-tech as that. Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. I think um, one of the drivers behind it is the spec by its very nature is a rather dry document. And by getting different people to to annotate it and discuss, you know, what different sections mean or where there may be ambiguities or where there may be things that are confusing to a lot of developers, the hope was that having, you know, a number of people, obviously John and I, Eric Lippert, um, John Box, Chris Sells, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole bunch of other people, um, go in and, and discuss different areas of the spec, hoping to bring it a little bit more, um, make it a little bit more accessible, make it a little bit more enjoyable to read, if, if reading a spec can ever really be enjoyable. Well, and you don't read a spec end to end anyway, unless you, you know, need a hobby. But, <laughs> or a life. <laughs> yeah, but it is something you need to jump into on a particular uh, you know, s- subsection, and it's nice to have some annotation there from folks who are like, here's where you'd use this, watch out for X, you know, that kind of thing. And just design reasoning. Um, my favorite annotations are the ones saying, well, we considered doing this in a different way, but it had these problems. And this is the sort of situation in which we envisage you using it. It wouldn't work if you had some other kind of problem. And that kind of thing gives a fascinating little bit of insight into what it must be like in that in that design team room. Oh, sure. And and also recognizing, I, I think it's easy for us to underestimate the amount of thought that's gone into the language. That we look at some, we want to do something a particular way, the language makes it difficult to do it that way, so then we declare the language team idiots, <laughs> and, and then when you're digging into the spec to find a piece that said, hey, we looked at doing this way, and here's how it would go wrong, it's yeah. smarter to do it this way. Yeah, and this this is still one of the things that to me would be a dream if they'd ever do it. You know, if you read Eric Lippert's blog when he discusses different language features, he'll often say, "Oh, I looked at the design team meeting notes from four or five years ago to, you know, when they were discussing this feature. One day, I'd love to see those come out. Those um, notes, you know, this, absolutely. Those Ten years of notes of Anders and." Mads and and Peter Goldie and Scott Wolfenmuth and you know here's here's why we want to add whatever feature and and what it's supposed to do. I think that would just be fascinating. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret though that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem, but what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics Framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, 
you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. You know, I, the, the thing that uh, that's coming to mind here is uh, you obviously uh, know this language inside and out. It, uh, is there still anything left that uh, that you find yourself complaining about as you're writing C-sharp, you know, oh, that you absolutely. wish it did things better? There are a few things that um, I'm sure the C-sharp design team are fed up with hearing me talking about. Um, I'm not terribly keen on the way that extension methods are discovered. Um, the language makes it very easy, as of C-sharp 3, to write mutable types, but it doesn't really encourage immutable types. Um, that's becomes slightly easier using named arguments and optional parameters in C-sharp 4, but there's a lot more that could be done. Um, basically, there's a whole lot of stuff that we could pinch from F-sharp. It, <laughs> it feels like F-sharp has done a load of trailblazing work, and because it's a slightly experimental language, or certainly was before Visual Studio 2010 came out, they could try something and then let the development community have at it and come back a bit. So they've done a load of work finding out things that work and things that don't. And some of those will be very specific to the idioms of F-sharp, but I'm sure an awful lot of them could be absorbed into C-sharp whilst keeping C-sharp as a C-sharp language. <laughs> um, it mustn't change character completely because if it just became F-sharp, well, you might as well use F-sharp. Um, and we do need to be careful in terms of how much baggage the language has. I don't know how many more versions the C-sharp team can actually bring out before they, dis before they declare, right, we're done. We can't add anything more to this without it just becoming an enormous monster that no, one ever, no one's ever going to learn from scratch. Yeah, that is the, the, the problem, isn't it? That it just becomes too complex to use. You know, when Donbox can't do a demo in Notepad or Emacs <laughs> or... <laughs> that, yeah, that should be the bar. That should be the bar. Well, I still do an awful lot of my... Um, Stack Overflow programs in not actually Notepad, but a little Emacs uh, clone called Jed. Um, so I, I'm very fond of having just a text editor up and the C Sharp compiler. Obviously, these are for tiny little programs to just demonstrate a particular feature. But it's actually quite invigorating to work without IntelliSense, and you find that you just get better at knowing the language without having to. Um, rely on the crutch of Visual Studio all the time. You know, is it going to put up some wigglies under my code? No. Okay, then it's okay. I'll move on to the next statement. You know, if you force yourself to use a less powerful environment, you become more innately capable of doing it yourself. I think. What um, what what do you see as being the the future of C sharp? Um, I mean, I guess we sort of talked a little bit about this with uh, Anders. You know about how uh, we're we're moving in a into a parallel world here, but um, where do where do you want the language to go? Oh well, I would say um, one part is I definitely agree with John. I think the story for creating immutable types has, has got to get easier uh, and, and more robust than it is right now. Um, in particular an immutable type that you intend to transfer across the wire using WCF or 
any other technology is truly painful. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really would like to see them get much better at. Um, I would like parallel programming to get more, uh, more approachable than it is. It's, it's, it's certainly on that road and it, but it's definitely a bit more difficult. Um, the other thing I think they're well on the way toward that I, I like is the way they can mix dynamic and static in the same language and interact with a lot of different things is really quite amazing. And I, but I, I also have to agree with John. I think there's a point where very quickly it's going to get to adding more stuff is just going to be more pain and really isn't allowing us to do things that are really hard to do right now. Um, and I think they're probably getting reasonably close to that, but, uh, I, I, uh, I kind of hope I'm wrong on that. I really enjoy the language now and I hope it just keeps getting better. Now, I mean, I see C sharp being pulled in a couple of different directions. One is this set of dynamic behaviors that are being added. And then the other is more functional behaviors that are being added, link being one of them, but there's more head in that direction. And, and then on top of that is parallel behaviors although i've also heard rumor of things like this super dynamic mode where literally i can build code and compile it on the fly within my code the compiler as a service feature yeah compiler as a service yeah, that's which being sort of hinted about and touted as a name but i don't think anyone outside the c-sharp design team and maybe a favored few really know what it's going to involve no um will it let you get into the compiler pipeline so that you could build your own link Maybe. <laughs> if if you um, really want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> More power to you. What I really want to see from C-Sharp 5 is something as astounding as Link that I have no idea about right now. Yeah. You want to if be I can imagine surprised. the feature, then it's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and this is one of the scary things about the compiler as a service thing. Um, you know, that some people requested around the time of Link if if I look at query expressions, why can't I add new keywords for query expressions? And the answer is that that would be incredibly painful and would make it hard to extend the language ever if people outside of those defining the language can add new keywords, right? Uh, yeah, right. And now, if you open up the compiler as a service and let people do whatever they want as part of that compilation pipeline, aren't you doing the same thing? You know, but on the other hand, the fact that the compiler is something we can call from from code, there's a lot of power we can have. You know, right now, if you want to write code inside your programs, you either have to use the expression API, which is really quite painful, um, or um, reflection.emit, which is probably even worse. Um, so having a better way to say, here's a class that's going to do something because I know the problem I need to solve right now is a, is a very interesting uh, future for this. Code that writes code. The interesting thing is I've got a little bit of a, a potted history with code writing code. Um, before I did C Sharp, I did Java. And I remember back in, I think, 1998 or something when Tomcat was out and JSPs, create Java code and then compile it. And there was always a problem with, oh, can you or can't you bundle um, some tools.jar to include the compiler? And I sort of started a proto-JSR, let's say. It never got as far as being a JSR while I had anything to do with it, saying, 
we ought to have some kind of interface to a compiler. And that got a little bit of interest from a gentleman named Neil Gafter, who then took the idea and ran with it. And then he left Sun and joined Google, where I then worked. Uh, I didn't see him much um, in terms of my daily work, although I should, by the way, point out that although I work for Google, I do not speak for Google, so none of this is the voice of Google coming. Um, so he took that, that idea and ran with it in Java, and now guess where he is? He's in Microsoft in the C-sharp design team. So, <laughs> so really, I think probably we could um, probably pin all the idea of compiler as a service down to what I proposed back then in Java. I think I can probably take all the credit. Oh, well, I think please do. I think that's fair, don't you? Yeah. A couple of emails. <laughs> I still I still debate whether this is actually a good idea. I mean, it's a, it's an, a fun mental exercise to what would you have to do to make that work. But show me the programs that would be better served from this technique. I honestly I honestly heed Bill's warning about, you know, if you if you take this to its logical conclusion, you're left with a language that looks a lot different from C sharp, you know, you're left with, you're left with stuff being written on the fly that, uh, that is kind of difficult to read and to follow. Well, what you end up with in some ways might be C++, which isn't yeah. so much a language as <laughs> the basis of another language that you build stuff in. Yeah, that's sort of um, what I'm getting at. <laughs> so... And we've seen C++ being used very, very well, and we've seen hideous abuse of it. Now, my gut feeling is that not enough of us are good enough at language design and working out how to best use language features that we want an awful lot of that power because I can see horrible things happening. But I can definitely see some good things as well. I don't know. I, I have a, a great degree of trust that the C-sharp team will give us something that actually fulfills a need without giving us too much power, or at least making it too tempting. You know, maybe there'll be all the power that you might need to take over the world, but it won't be so tempting that you're tempted to try. What was your point, Bill? Well, you know, one of the things that I look at on, um, you know, and this gets back to both the books that John and I have, have written on, on different subjects here, is that if I look at the language, there, you know, the I can't point to features that the teams have added, you know, whether it be C Sharp or Java or, or other languages, that, oh, yeah, here's a feature, and you should never, ever, ever, ever use it because it's just plain bad. Well, then the answer is, why did you put it in the language anyway? Um, and yet, if you listen to a lot of people talk about, you know, guidance, you know, you will hear people say, oh, never use VAR. Well, it's it's more nuanced than that. There are places where it really helps. You know, never use anonymous sites or whatever the case may be. And I think the same is true for you know, generating code. It's certainly, it is not the first tool you reach for off your bookshelf, but there are times when, you know, if I write a small bit of code right here because I know what I'm trying to do, you know, and have my my program generate code, it is a better solution than whatever else I could come up with. Um, you know, one um, very simple one we had is that in one of the research projects, there's a an enormous amount of numeric data that gets gets cranked out. And we put in some very simple ways to do some computations between the different columns in this, this massive grid. We try to keep it as simple as possible, and even then trying to generate code to compute those things at runtime was truly painful. I 
And it would be great to say, yeah, here's the quick C-sharp method that, you know, computes A divided by B, you know, whatever it is. And if we keep that very bounded, I think there's a lot of power there. Hmm. That's interesting, Bill. That's a good way to think about the problem. And, it, and again, it's Microsoft's never held back from giving us a, enough rope to hang ourselves with. Well, and neither is anybody else. Like like John said, C++ has got some incredibly um, powerful features. And there are times when the, there's the right things to grab. And there, and there are other times when, no, they really aren't. Yeah, maybe sometimes it's not. A, it's really not a good idea. Um, I I find when I go back and use languages that aren't uh, .NET languages that you know, gener and generic support is just something that I completely lean on so much now. That uh, you know, and I remember, well, I remember what life was like before generics. <laughs> the <laughs> dark time. It wasn't fun. And just how much, you know, generics and then later Link, these, these little things that just keep making our lives so much easier. And the funny thing about generics is everyone, all authors, myself included, bang on about it makes your code type safe. You won't get those nasty cast exceptions. And I don't remember ever actually getting many of those cast <laughs> exceptions. It's not that our code was actually faulty but it's the fact that it couldn't express what it was trying to do. So right. you had this map or list or whatever, and you had extra long names to sort of indicate what might be in it, but nothing checking it. And you just felt insecure because you didn't, you didn't really know what was going to be in there, and nothing would stop you from making a mistake and lead you into doing the right thing at the right time. So... It's not that there were more bugs back then, but nothing was trying to help you go down the right path. And the APIs that you could build, you know, I'm going to return you all the names of the customers. Right, so you're returning an array list. So is that an array list of custom name types or just strings or what? We just can't tell. I'll tell you what, let's use an array instead because you know, that's relatively strongly typed so long as you don't use it covariantly and rah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all about the expressiveness, much more than the actual finding bugs. One of the things I find interesting in dynamic languages, you know, I don't know a lot of Python and Ruby, and I really need to find out one time. But I can't help feeling it would be nice if you could indicate in a dynamic language, okay, it doesn't have to be like this, but it, this is the sort of shape that something's going to have, a parameter or a return type. You know, it may be something pretending to be that. That's fine. Keep as dynamic as you like, but have a way beyond just names of functions of indicating what's going to come out or what you expect into a method or function or type. John, do you ever wish that you could have uh, mixed different languages not uh, you know, within the same project? Like to just be able to, in uh, in in a C sharp uh, class, just be able to put a little directive that says you know F sharp, and then just write a little F sharp, and then get you know for one method, and then get back into C sharp for everything else. If I knew F sharp better, I might. Very very occasionally, it might be interesting to be able to put IL directly into C sharp. Mm -hmm. There are just a few things that you can express in IL that you can't express in C-sharp, um, and you know, I've 
typically investigated those and found silly things that you can do with them and thought, no, it's not really worth it. But possibly if you could put IL in directly, that might be useful. Um, given how easy it is to have different projects within the same solution in Visual Studio, and you can have one C-sharp project, one F-sharp project, so long as you don't get a problem with circular dependencies from that, I think usually it's okay. I suspect it's one of those things that would cause more harm than good. Overall. Yeah, you're probably right. It really isn't that much difference. And and in the reality is that, you know, if you, you you should probably be separating your classes into separate files anyway. You might as well just move them to a different assembly. Well, there there yeah. are actually some runtime performance implications. And, and this kind of loops back to the to where we started with the premature optimization in that there are some performance implications having to do with crossing assembly boundaries. Um, there's a there's a trust boundary there, you know, depending on where that second assembly is located. And method calls across assemblies can't be inlined. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think the jitter may, that information might be a little out of date, but, um, you know, and that may or may not have implications. So, it could be kind of cool, but I have never found myself actually wanting to switch languages between one or the other. And, you know, part of that to me is that VB, C-sharp, and F-sharp are all relatively complete languages. They all have slightly different strengths, but I, I never find myself so hobbled in one or the other that I really want to... Oh, what about what about XML literals? I mean... I knew you were going to say that, Yeah. That's a uh, I, very powerful feature, and it took a little getting used to being able to, you know, oh, we're we're not using the 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 VBNet editor here. Now we're in this sort of XML meta language, right in line. Yeah. I honestly I don't find I miss it that effect, much, but I can see why the C Sharp team didn't go for it. Um, it feels a little bit too much baking one particular technology into the language. Mm. Um, yeah, who knows. I suspect that XML is still going to be in use in five or ten years' time. But maybe it will have mostly waned, and there will be something else. Say, JSON. You know, is VB going to get JSON literal support next? Uh, well, uh, well I think I'd slope. rather have an API that makes it really easy to build JSON programmatically. Uh. Um, it's a bit like SQL and Link. We could have had... SQL embedded directly into the language and it doing some parameter um, replacements and things. But by taking the broader picture and saying, well, what do we really want to express here? Let's ignore the technologies involved, maybe take some ideas from it, obviously take the vocabulary from it, but let's think about the ideas behind it instead of just the technology, just SQL, or to go to XML, just XML notation. What can we build in the language that's versatile and can be applied to many different technologies? So maybe there'll be something, arguably object initializers and collection initializers in C-sharp 3 are about as close as you get to that. You know, they, they let you build objects in a, in a format that looks sometimes quite like XML. You, know, you can build the trees up. Okay, you've got braces instead of angle brackets, but you know, aside from that, it's very similar. Um, Maybe that's the way forward. Right. And, and and there's a related problem here as well in that if you look at, you know, what if the SQL standard changes? 
right? The way LinkedXML or Link2SQL is written, that's not a big deal because the concept is still correct, as John points out. And the same thing would be true if if the XML standard changes. Now the VB language is going to have a very interesting problem because it's either a breaking change that's going to break a lot of code or the code would be now producing something that's non-conforming. Now the reality is the XML standard probably isn't going to change, but it's still at least a, a big theoretical concern. That was uh, XML literals was one of those things where people realized, oh my God, these languages really are different and need to you know be used for different things. Some uh, some people like that sort of divergence, and and others find it a little scary. Um, what do you guys think about that? Do you think we should have more parity between VBNet and C Sharp? It seems to have gone back and forth. Um, I remember when C Sharp 3 and I think it was VB9, I sometimes lose track of the VB um, version numbers, when they came out, there was a statement or possibly comment from the community saying, look, you can tell these really are different languages now. Yes, they have bits at their heart which are the same. You've got link. But if you look at link in VB, you've got all kinds of things within the query expressions, whereas C-sharp's query expressions are relatively limited. Um, on the other hand, C-sharp allows you to use Lambda expressions all over the place mm-hmm. where VB was more restricted. And then C-sharp 4 and the next version of VB came along and suddenly C-sharp has late binding and C-sharp has optional parameters and named arguments. VB has more powerful Lambda expressions and we're coming back towards parity. Now, I don't think it'll ever be complete parity. I don't know whether VB now has iterator blocks. I think they were at least talking about getting them. Um, C-sharp still doesn't have XML literals. There will always be some differences, I'm sure. But I can't really tell whether they're aiming for mostly feature parity going forward or not. I think my gut feeling is that they are, but we'll have to see. Well, and it, and it seems to me those two languages are quite close together. I mean, it's not that unusual to find people flipping between those languages, certainly from a samples perspective or anything like that. But, you know, Bill, earlier on, you you said you, you put C-sharp, VBNet, and F-sharp together. And I think F-sharp is the odd duckling there that it's quite a bit different of a language. It's it's much younger, and real functional programming looks quite different from the the style of coding that we normally do in C-sharp and VB. What about uh, support for Link in F-sharp? Does it look radically different from C-sharp? To my knowledge, yeah, there is quite a bit of different style there. Um, I am not by any means an F-sharp guru. Um, but it definitely has a very different syntax to it, and some of the behavior is a little different. I was um, discussing that this morning with uh, one of our guys, Chris Marinos, does a lot more F-sharp than I do, and it is different um, and how they parse things out and how you express things occasionally. Um, and I wasn't trying to say that C-sharp or F-sharp is the same as VB or C-sharp, but you can theoretically get everything done in any one of those languages. Um, I'll also admit I'm a little confused. I don't know if Microsoft is really going to bring the VB and C-sharp feature list to complete parity or not. And part of that is for languages that more or less, you know, broadly speaking, have similar functionality, the communities are very, very different and uh, have very different goals and very different ideals around 
the kinds of design decisions you hear them talk about and discuss. Well, guys, that seems like a pretty good place to leave it. Is there anything else that we uh, that we wanted to cover we didn't really get a chance to? I think we've hit all those points. Yeah, seems good to me. I should probably plug the fact that the second edition of C-Sharp Index is coming out fairly soon. Okay. Um, it has been coming out fairly soon for a few months now, admittedly, <laughs> but it really is getting very, very close now. Real soon now. Yeah. And, and Bill, you had an update in the spring, right? That's right. The uh, Effective C-Sharp second edition came out in the spring. Um, so there was roughly one-third new items there. And to loop all the way back, uh, John was actually one of the proposal reviewers on the original Effective C-Sharp first edition. Ah. I don't know if you even remember that. John, do you remember being a, an original reviewer of the proposal for Effective C-Sharp? Oh, I've reviewed so many proposals now, I'm not sure. I think I mean, the idea of it has always appealed so much. Um, and Bill obviously knows the language inside out. So I'm sure if I, I although I can't remember the exact proposal, <laughs> I'm sure I'd have given it a thumbs up with no <laughs> doubts whatsoever. Apparently you did. <laughs> I still have the email. Well, I don't hold so much sway in the publishing community that you know, one or maybe not from me would uh, would completely curse a book. But um, yeah, I, I can't imagine not wanting a style guide for C sharp, and more than just you know here's where the braces go, but here's how to write idiomatic, appropriate C sharp. Bill Wagner, John Skeet, thank you very much for joining us here on .NET Rocks. It's been a pleasure talking. To you. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time, dear listener, on Not Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, and some are talking.